When we met last on Sunday evening, I attempted to go through an entire proverb, Proverbs 18, and thank you for those of you who appreciated that message and encouraged me to do that again, and so I'm going to attempt to do that tonight with Proverbs 19 under the title, What is the Good Life and How Can I Find It? What is the good life and how can I find it? Through the centuries, mankind has wondered about the true nature of human goodness. He's asked repeatedly how human goodness is to be understood and to be lived out. You often hear people claiming about themselves, well, I'm just trying to be a good person. I hear that often. But as I try to propose in tonight's sermon title, what is the good life and how can I find it, what really defines that good life? And what does goodness really mean? What does it look like? How is it practically measured? How does goodness manifest itself in people's lives today? Well, it seems to me that that's exactly what Proverbs 19 is seeking to show us. It seems that this is exactly, by the way, what Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 to 35. There, with the subtitle in my New American Standard Bible, Words Reveal Character, The scripture says this, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. Speaking, of course, to the Pharisees, he said, you brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his treasure what is evil. Now, Jesus tells us succinctly that people will be known by their fruit bearing. If there's bad fruit hanging from the tree of their life, it's therefore a bad tree. But if there is good fruit hanging from their tree of life, it's therefore, of course, a good tree. Good treasure comes from a good man, and bad treasure comes from a bad man. And that is, I think, exactly what Proverbs 19 gives us when it gives us the characteristics, when it gives us the characteristics of a good man, a good life. And if you want to know whether or not your life tree is good or bad, listen to what Proverbs 19 has to tell you tonight. Now, I derive the title of the message this evening to two of the particular verses in this chapter. Look at verse 2 and verse 8. Both verses speak of what is inherently good in life and how to find that goodness. For instance, verse 2 says, it is not good There's our word. It is not good for a person to be without knowledge. And verse 8 further says, He who keeps understanding will find good. One verse 
teaches us that it is not good to be without divine knowledge in this life. And the other verse encourages us that finding the good in this life is bound up in retaining that divine knowledge. And really the rest of the chapter is but the practical outworking of those two verses. And in a survey of this chapter, I found 19 characteristics of the good life and how we can find it. Now, let's go through those quickly. Obviously, if you do the math, I can only do these 19 in about maybe one or two, three minutes at the most. So if you've got your pencil handy, write these down, because I think they'll be good for us, no pun intended, to allow us to see what are the characteristics of the good life, according to Solomon here in Proverbs 19. And I'll give these to you as we go along, but at least... I'll say at the outset, here are these 19 characteristics. The goodness of integrity, reflection, grace, finances, truth-telling, generosity, action, wisdom, blessing, discretion, righteousness, family, diligence, obedience, gentleness, heeding, scripture, reverence, and chastisement. All of that contained for us here in this great chapter. I had a fun time studying this chapter and finding out what is precisely the good life and how we can find it. Let's look at the first one, the goodness of integrity. Verse 1, better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than he who is perverse in speech and is a fool. If you want to know what the good life is all about and how to find it, Solomon says it's got to start with your integrity. And that integrity will also begin with your speech. Notice what he says. Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity. Integrity in our speech. That's a major theme in the Proverbs, isn't it? Major theme. And King Solomon appears to be saying that a man had the opportunity, apparently, to become rich. But instead, he chose integrity. Because he refers there in verse 1 to a poor man. And he, apparently, given the choice, would rather walk in his integrity and remain poor. And then he, of course, says, a poor man who walks in his integrity is better than he who is perverse in speech and is a fool. Maybe Solomon is saying, when given the choice, when forced to choose, would you rather have poverty or your integrity? This poor man listed here says, I'd rather have my integrity. And the rich man, presumably, even though he's not talked about explicitly there, apparently would rather have his riches, and unfortunately, in his speech, is a fool. It's not good. Not good at all. Look over at Proverbs chapter 28, verse 6, for a similar statement. Proverbs 28, 6. Almost the same here. Better is the poor who walks in his integrity than he who is crooked, though he be rich. Very similar. Maybe giving us insight into the similarities of these two Proverbs. 
In other words, better to have your integrity than anything else, including money. Better have that than anything else. Knowing that you're right with God, even if you're poor, is worth its weight in gold. That's what he's saying. Because even if you are rich, yet you lack integrity, you're a fool with crooked lips, and that's not a part of the good life at all. Oh, the inherent goodness of a life of integrity. Secondly, the goodness of reflection. Verse 2, Solomon says, Also, it is not good for a person to be without knowledge, and he who hurries his footsteps errs. Now, I take this idea of reflection to be an important part of the good life because of the second line of this proverb and the concept of hurrying. Do you see it there? He who hurries his footsteps errs. In other words, as you read this proverb, Solomon is saying that if a person hurries his steps in his life, or you might be saying if he rushes, if he goes too quickly, rushing into his actions without thinking, then the consequences of his steps will be an erring consequence. In other words, slow down. Think through things. The implication is that if you're careful, if you slow down, then you're going to be a person who has knowledge. Because you're a person, if you think quickly, if you're rash, if you hurry in your steps, in your thinking, in your attitudes, it's not good. And a person will be without knowledge. Some, by the way, have even said that this proverb is talking about someone's desires because it says it is not good for a person. Could be translated person, but could also be translated desires. And it could be that someone is not hurrying because they want their own desires to be met very, very quickly. If this is true, the proverb could be translated this way. Indeed, ignorant desire is not good, and rushing feet make mistakes. If you want to know what the good life is all about, take your time, reflect, think, ponder, reflect on spiritual knowledge, the kind of knowledge that comes to us from Holy Scripture. Proverbs 29.20 says it this way, Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Don't be hasty in your thinking. Don't be hasty in your words. Reflect. That's the good life. Reflect, think, ponder, and you'll find that good life indeed. Number three, the goodness of grace. The goodness of grace. Verse three, the foolishness of man ruins his way and his heart rages against the Lord. I call this the goodness of grace because if it weren't for God's mighty grace, we would all have hearts that rage against the Lord, wouldn't we? We'd all be in this terrible condition. We'd all be classified as fools, ruining our way. And it's only because of the mercy of Jesus Christ that we're not considered 
just like these fools. We have the grace of Yahweh. Otherwise, we would be raging. Notice Solomon says, A foolish man ruins his own way. But notice who he's mad at. He's raging against the Lord. Why isn't he raging against himself? He ruined his own way, it says. And yet his heart rages against the Lord. I was reminded this, uh, of this again when I was reading through Genesis this month. And I read that account, of course, in the early part of Genesis regarding the fall of mankind. And you look at that text and you find that Adam blames the woman. The woman blames the serpent. Everybody's blaming somebody else. And this is just like what Solomon is saying here about the foolish man. He ruins his own way, and yet his heart rages against the Lord. By the way, that word ruin could also be subverts. He subverts his way, implied his own way. That's certainly the opposite of finding the good life with the good fruit that Jesus was talking about there in Matthew's Gospel. The goodness of grace. Number four, the goodness of finances. Verse four says, Wealth adds many friends, but a poor man is separated from his friend. Now this is a little bit difficult to try to understand, but what I think Solomon is saying here is this. Finances are a good thing. They're a good thing. And it can add to your life many friends. Maybe not always the friends you want or need, but it does have its fringe benefits, this money. So use your money wisely and you'll know how to live the good life. Use your money wisely. Because if a man is poor, presumably, again, because of the way he handles his finances, it says there, even the one friend that he has will drop him. Even the one friend that he has will drop him. Notice it says that the wealthy man has friends, friends in the plural, plural, but this poor man who presumably has squandered his money even has the one friend that was around him fly the coop. I think this proverb might very well be a wise saying on the goodness of using your money well, which allows you to have friends when you need them. That's the implication. You don't handle your money well, you'll lose out on the good life because even the friend that was around you will vacate when the money's gone. They'll drop you. Number five, the goodness of truth-telling. And we're going to bind up a couple of different Proverbs here, maybe four of them. Look at verse five. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who tells lies will not escape. Look also down at verse 9. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who tells lies will perish. And then also verse 22. What is desirable in a man is his kindness, and it is better, better to be a poor man than a liar. And then verse 28. A rascally witness makes a mockery of justice, and the mouth of the wicked spreads iniquity. 
All four of those Proverbs talking in some way about truth-telling. And for three of them, it's the scene where this is a court of law. I can imagine us in our own day having been called for jury duty. And you go into the jury box and you sit there and you're talking or you may even be called as a witness in a proceeding, in a trial, called to tell the truth, called to gather the facts, called upon to see what the truth is or called upon to tell the truth. Or maybe you're a witness to the scene of a crime or maybe you're a witness to an accident. All of those things in our contemporary vernacular is designed for us to tell the truth. This is what a court of law would have been like back in Solomon's day. A person's asked to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. If he doesn't, he says he'll be punished or he will not go unpunished. If he lies, he'll not escape the consequences. You should always tell the truth. But if you're called upon to place your hand on that Bible and you're to give a testimony in a court of law, then you're called upon to tell the truth. You're called upon to tell the truth at all times. But if you want to know the good life, the good life is not telling lies. You're not going to find it there. You're going to find it by telling the truth. Look at verse 9. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who tells lies will perish. Maybe that's even describing the eternity of someone who isn't a truth teller. It's not just that he will be punished. It may very well be that he is punished throughout all eternity for not being a truth teller. Have you ever seen the interesting passage at the back of our Bibles in Revelation, in one of the latter chapters there, and it gives a hideous list of all of those who will be in the lake of fire, and it gives all of those attributes, all of those characteristics that we might assume should be there, and you're going through that list, and it gives all of those, and then there's one right in the middle that says this, and all liars. And it looks as though it's something that doesn't belong in that list, but it does. Because all of us are called upon to tell the truth. And if you don't tell the truth, and if you make a mockery of justice, that's what verse 28 says, you're going to perish. A rascally witness, verse 28, makes a mockery of justice, and the mouth of the wicked spreads iniquity. I mean, if a person can't be called upon to tell the truth, then justice is made into a mockery. No wonder he's called a rascal. I love that word, rascal. Just sort of almost onomatopoeic. It's rascal. He just sounds bad. He is going to receive the fruit of his own mockery. By the way, a rascally witness is literally translating from the Hebrew, a witness of Belial. Rascal means Belial. A witness of Belial. A person is witnessing to the liar of all lying, to the chief of all liars. His mouth spreads iniquity like there is no tomorrow. That's not how to live the good life, the righteous life. Look back, by the way, at verse 22. 
What is desirable in a man is his kindness, and it is better to be a poor man than a liar. Again, almost like that characteristic of verse 1. You've got a choice, being poor or being a liar. What do you choose? You see, Solomon is saying, given that choice, choose poverty every single time. Don't be like a rich man who would choose his riches, but but would then be found out to be a liar. Take your poverty. You'll be living the good life. Then you say, living the good life in poverty is better than the eternity of hell because you've been found out characteristically to be a liar. Kindness is desirable in a man, and so is truth-telling. Those are virtues. That's living the good life. Even if you don't have money, you still have your character. Number six, the goodness of generosity. The goodness of generosity. Look at verse six. Many will seek the favor of a generous man, and every man is a friend to him who gives gifts. Now, this is a little bit different than that fourth characteristic that I gave you, the goodness of finances. This is centering in specifically on a generous man. He's generous in his character. It's not just that he handles his money well, the goodness of finances. It's the goodness of his generosity toward others. He's giving his money away. He's a giver. And of course... This phrase, many will seek the favor of, is someone who wants your money. He wants you to be generous, literally, to strike the face of, uh, to go up to someone and uh, gently stroke their face, as it were, being kind, seeking their money, seeking help from them. Many will seek the favor. Many will strike the face of a generous man. And every man is a friend to him who gives gifts. Now you, of course, have got to watch out there. Your generosity doesn't always mean that you give every time someone asks for it. But in order to live the good life, you're a discerning, generous person. It's not saying that when your generosity exceeds your discernment, you've got to watch out there, but your generosity is a characteristic part of you, and that's characteristic of the good life and how to find it. Also look at verse 17. One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. Solomon says if you want to know how to find the good life, Look no further. A man who is gracious to the poor is actually lending money to Yahweh. Yeah, that's right. You're a person who is lending your own efforts, presumably, again, finances, material goods, to the poverty-stricken around you. And when you're doing that, you're actually giving to the Lord Himself. It may even be a crediting kind of thing that you're giving to that poor person and the Lord in heaven is stacking up the credit that you're accruing in this life for the poor that you're reaching out to. And every time you do something for the poor, every time you take care of those around you, 
who are indigent, those who are in desperate need. It's just crediting more and more to your account so that when you reach the portals of heaven, it's all cashed in. The Lord rewards you. Could be a reward for this life, could be a reward in the life to come, or both. That's the goodness of generosity. Number seven, the goodness of action. I like this one, the goodness of action. Verse 7, all the brothers of a poor man hate him. How much more do his friends abandon him? He pursues them with words, but they are gone. I speak of this as the goodness of action because unlike those who abandon the poor, like verse 4 talks about, the man who is looking to find the good life will seek to help the poor man. If his poverty is not his own doing, if he hasn't squandered his money, if he really has tangible needs, the good man won't hate him like this Proverbs talking about. The good man will help him. The good man wants to reach out to him. He finds that the vast majority of people have deserted him, but the good man, through the goodness of his actions, comes to help him. That's what defines the good life, helping those in need, reaching out to those who cannot fend for themselves. And you're finding what the good life is all about because you're reaching out with the goodness of your actions. Number eight, the goodness of wisdom. Verse eight, he who gets wisdom loves his own soul, his nefesh, his own soul. He who keeps understanding will find good. In other words, at the deepest part of you, at your soulish dimension, your heart, the constituent place, the immaterial place of you, you love your own soul, and because of that self-advantage, because of that self-interest, what do you do? You get wisdom. You get wisdom. Because if you truly, in the spiritual sense, love your own soul, you're going to feed your own soul. You're going to reach out to your soul by giving your soul wisdom. He who keeps understanding will find good. You want to find the good life? Solomon says, there it is. There's the good life. You see it? If you love your own soul... Use that self-interest to your advantage. Pursue Christ in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Pursue Christ. Pursue His Word. Keep the understanding going. If you love your own soul, you'll do it. If you love your own soul, you'll do it. Number nine, the goodness of blessing. The goodness of blessing. Here's the good life. It's made up of blessing. Verse 10. (laughs) This is funny. Luxury is not fitting for a fool, much less for a slave to rule over princes. I mean, he says, it's just not done. It is just not done. Luxury is not fitting for a fool, much less a slave to rule over princes. It's great to be blessed in what we do in life. That's generally what occurs when you live your life for the Lord a life of blessing, a life of honor. You do the right things. You live the good life. You follow Jesus Christ as Lord of your life. You confess your sin. You reach out to the poor. You do all that you can through prayer and your own giving. Your heart reaches out to those around you. You want to minister to them. 
And as a result of that, not always, of course, in axiomatic fashion, but generally speaking, the Lord blesses you. He blesses you like luxury. And He blesses you like not having to have forced labor. The other way around just doesn't do. Luxury is not fitting for a fool. Forced labor is not what princes are being subjected to. You pursue the good life. It's only found in Christ and luxury and elegance of royalty might be the very thing that is fitting for you. That's the goodness of blessing. Number 10, the goodness of discretion. Verse 11, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. This is pretty straightforward. The beauty of the good life, the beauty of it is that you can use discretion when you're forced into a situation where others would only be using anger. Discretion could also be translated insight. You've got insight. While somebody else is just parlaying their anger into a mad dash of futility, you are stopping, thinking, using discretion so that you can do the right thing. And in this this case, he says, and it is glory to overlook a transgression. What might he mean here? Well, it's something like this. Somebody offends you. You have dealings with them. There's a transaction of forgiveness sought and granted. And then, if that offense is something you continue to think about in your own mind, you don't become angry, you don't become bitter. You overlook that because you've forgiven that person, you've overlooked it, you've covered it, it's been covered, and it's the glory of a man to overlook it. It's a glory of a man not to become bitter and resentful and angry because of that past offense. You don't let it bother you. You don't work yourself up into a lather because that person has offended you. You have discretion. You think it through. Your insight carries you through the day. In fact, the word glory there could be adornment. You're adorning discretion. You're not adorning anger. You're working that through in your mind. And your character pushes you through the time when others would have been hacked off because of the very offense that they continue to think about and continue to struggle over. Not you. You've worked yourself through it. Folks, that's the good life. That's how you find the good life. You don't work in life to lather yourself up in an angry mood because someone has offended you. You rather instead think through it, you work through it in your mind, and once that transgression has been a forgiveness sought and granted, you respond by saying, I don't have to continue to bring that up in my own mind. I'm living the good life. I don't have to do that. Number 11, the goodness of righteousness. Verse 12, the king's wrath is like the roaring of a lion but His favor is like dew on the grass. I think this is really talking about righteousness or right standing or right living or right acting. 
And we've got a choice. You do the right thing. You live the good life. You follow Christ as Lord. You follow the Word of God. Generally speaking, you avoid the wrath of the king, the wrath of the ruler. You want to do that because the wrath itself is said to be like a roaring lion. It's not good. You want to avoid that. And you do so by living a righteous life because you want the king's favor. What is it like? It's like the dew on the grass. It's like that refreshing dew on the morning grass. What a picture of refreshment that would be in a very arid and dry culture like this Mediterranean culture that no doubt Solomon was writing from. That would have been something that would have been very inviting to them. Don't bring on the king's wrath. It's like a roaring lion. Bring instead the king's favor. It's like the morning dew on the grass. It's refreshing. That's what happens when you're righteous. That's the pursuit of the good life. That's what you want. The goodness next of family. Number 12. The goodness of family. Several verses here. Look at verses 13 and 14. A foolish son is destruction to his father, and the contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. House and wealth are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. And then look at verse 18. Discipline your son while there is hope, and do not desire his death. And then also verse 26. He who assaults his father and drives his mother away is a shameful and disgraceful son. I think we could wrap all of this up in the goodness of family, speaking, of course, both negatively and positively. Can anything be clearer, both positively and negatively, in trying to find the good life than this description of the family? First, a foolish son. He's not looking for the good life. He's rather destroying his home by his foolishness. Destroying his father, it says. And again, maybe not the same house, or maybe it is. There's a house with a contentious wife, and she lives there. It says with that contention as though it's like a constant dripping. Have you ever had a faucet that does that? Boy, it just bugs you. You can either hear it or you can see it, and it's constant. And if you're like me, not being a plumber and not knowing how to fix it, you just see that dripping and dripping and dripping and dripping, the incessant, constant dripping of a faucet. That is so graphic about someone who is contentious, especially a spouse. Notice I didn't say just a wife. A spouse. Constant dripping. And in verse 26, this son, this ungrateful, wicked son who assaults his father and who drives his mother away from himself is said to be shameful and disgraceful. Who wants to live in that house? No one wants to live there. Look at the remedy in verse 18. Discipline that boy before it's too late. Don't become so exasperated with him that you desire his death. No, discipline him while there's still time to do so. 
presumably when he's grown and gone, you won't have the time or opportunity to correct him. Do it now. There's hope for him now while he's still under your parental control, your parental authority. There's hope, mom and dad. Hope. But you must show your son or your daughter the characteristics of the good life and how they can find it. A life that pleases God. And if you know of or if you are convicted by this contentiousness in this woman who lives in this house, look at the antidote to the contentious woman in verse 14. House and wealth are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Obviously, that's a contrast. Contentious wife, prudent wife. Solomon says, look, from your father you can receive wealth. From your father, you can receive an inheritance. That's what you receive on a human level. And that's a good thing, but that's not a great thing. The great thing is receiving a prudent wife like I have, and that is a gift from the Lord. That comes to us from Yahweh. There is nothing like living with a woman who loves Jesus Christ, and who is prudent and uncontentious. Nothing like it. It's a gift. It's an absolute gift. Where would I be? What would I be doing? Where would we be if we did not have those wonderful, prudent women whom God has given us as husbands? We are blessed, the most blessed. That's how you live the good life. You trust the Lord to bring that person to you. And when you live with them, live with them in an understanding way so that their prudence splashes over onto you and your love splashes over onto them and that you will have the kind of house where there isn't a constant dripping of the faucet of contention. That's the way to live the good life. The goodness of diligence. 13. The goodness of diligence. Look at verse 15. Laziness casts into a deep sleep, and an idle man will suffer hunger. And also verse 24. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish, but will not even bring it back to his mouth. Now, that's what I would call laziness. Someone who obviously wants to eat, but is so lazy that they bring from the dish a mouthful, they put it in, they bring their arm back down, and they're too lazy to raise it up again with an open mouth. This is incredible. And notice verse 15 again. Laziness casts into a deep sleep. Oh, how that is so true. Lazy people just want to sleep all the time. And an idle man, Solomon says, will suffer hunger. No wonder. Idleness, not working. The opposite, of course, is being diligent. The goodness, the virtue of the concept of diligence. It's something that the Lord is so pleased with. From this negative perspective, of course, a lazy man just wants to sleep. An idle man, one who doesn't work hard, suffers from hunger. No wonder 
He's not willing to work hard. And the sluggard is so lazy that he can't even eat a meal without being so lazy he doesn't even finish the job. The goodness of obedience. Verse 16. The goodness of obedience. He who keeps the commandment keeps his soul. But he who is careless of conduct will die. How simple is this? How simple is it? Finding the good life means keeping the commandments or obedience. It keeps your soul safe. That's what it says. But if you're careless in your conduct, Solomon says you'll die. Oh, what a blessing obedience has been time after time after time. The goodness of obedience. Essential characteristic of the good life. That's how you find the good life. Obey. Obey the commandments of God. How many times in the Scripture do you read, do you hear, keep the commandments and live? Do the commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. My commandments aren't burdensome. The Lord will give you grace to obey the commandments. It's a good life component. And then the goodness of gentleness. Verse 19. Number 15, the goodness of gentleness. Verse 19, a man of great anger will bear the penalty. For if you rescue him, you will only have to do it again. Now, this is a picture of a man who continually gets himself in trouble because of what Solomon calls his great anger. And the instruction to watch out for is is that if you attempt to help him, you're only going to have to do it again and again and again because his anger is not bridled. Rather, you should find the goodness of gentleness as the very opposite of this great anger because a gentle word turns away wrath, anger. You don't want to have to try to rescue people time after time after time. And the way you do that is to have the goodness of gentleness. It's a wonderful attribute of the good life. And then this one, the goodness of heeding. Number 16, the goodness of heeding. Verses 20, 25, and 27. Verse 20, listen to counsel and accept discipline that you may be wise the rest of your days. And then verse 25. Strike a scoffer, and the naive may become shrewd, but reprove one who has understanding, and he will gain knowledge. And verse 27. Cease listening, my son, to discipline, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. I give this characteristic, this concept of heeding, because each one of those Proverbs speaks in some way to heeding advice, doesn't it? Heeding advice. Verse 20 talks about heeding the words of someone else by your listening, listening to counsel, accepting discipline. Verse 25 talks about the reproof that you gain and the knowledge you gain from that reproof. And then verse 27 talks about heeding the voice of someone's discipline toward you. What a valuable commodity. 
If you listen to counsel, if you accept discipline, you'll be wise, verse 20 says, for the rest of your days. That's living the good life. The rest of your days, he says. You heed reproof, you'll gain knowledge, verse 25. And according to verse 27, from the negative side of the equation, if you fail to heed discipline by listening to your father or some other wise person, you'll stray from their knowledgeable words. Don't miss out on the good life by failing to heed its instructions, its warnings. It'll be good to you. Yes, it's going to hurt. But oh, it hurts so good. And then the goodness of Scripture. Verse 21. And number 17 in our list, the goodness of Scripture. Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. You know, when you give the characteristics of the good life and how to find it, you can't leave out Scripture. You can't leave out the goodness of Scripture, and Solomon doesn't. He says that a man's heart has many plans. Isn't that so true? We plan, we strategize. Man has a lot of ways that he can plan his life or what he'd like to do or what he thinks is best. But the counsel of the Lord will stand. Only the Lord's Word stands the test of time. Only Scripture corrects a man's foolish plans. Only the Bible can be counted upon to provide these time-tested truths which balance our schemes. For the life of me, not speaking to you, you're the choir. For the life of me, I don't understand why more people don't avail themselves of Sunday night service, of other opportunities to hear the Word of God, of Bible studies, of other things for which the counsel of the Lord, which is contained in the Word of God, would help them in their frustrated many plans. Their schemes, their desires... Their motivations. What a tremendous characteristic to find in this good life of ours. The goodness of Scripture. The counsel of the Lord will stand, will stand forever. The goodness of reverence. Number 18. The goodness of reverence. Verse 23. The fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied untouched by evil. The word fear, of course, could be translated reverence. You want to know how to find the good life? Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. The reverence of Yahweh leads to it. If you're this man who is righteous and holy, you love the Lord Jesus, you want to serve Him in your days, you want to be that righteous man, Reverence the Lord to the degree that when you go to sleep at night, you're totally satisfied. Totally satisfied. My wife laughs at me because I have the blessed opportunity that normally when my head hits the pillow, 22 seconds later or sooner, I'm fast asleep. You know why? Part of that is because I'm endeavoring to walk in the service of the Lord. I'm endeavoring to do what is right in His eyes, to fear Him, to reverence Him. And when you go to sleep, you don't have to 
deal with guilt. You don't have to deal with problems or issues. Even the ones that are there that you know you'll wake up to the next day if the Lord is willing, you can sleep in a satisfied way because you know your life is endeavoring to fear the Lord Jesus Christ. You can go to sleep satisfied. And then he says, untouched by evil. That's the Lord's protection, isn't it? This is the goodness of reverence. You fear the Lord, you can go to sleep. You fear the Lord, and He'll protect you from harm. And then last in our list, number 19, the goodness of chastisement. You say, you want to end there? Yes. Verse 29, judgments are prepared for scoffers and blows for the back of fools. The 19th and last characteristic of the good life is, of course, the opposite of this proverb, and that is chastisement. If you love the Lord, according to Hebrews 12, you're going to be chastised. You're going to be disciplined, but that's a good thing. It may not seem joyful for the moment, but afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. But not for this person, according to verse 29. What is prepared for scoffers are judgments. And blows for the back of fools. Whippings. But a man who's looking to find the good life, he's going to welcome chastisement. He's not going to scoff. Instead of scoffing, he's a person who receives. He will receive pats on the back instead of blows on the back. He's going to receive reward. He's going to be wise. He's going to be a good man instead of a fool. A wise man accepts chastisement. It's good to him. It may not always be something that he looks forward to, but he knows the end result. He knows what he's going to receive in the end. The chastisement is going to drive him to the very purpose that the Lord has set up for him, and that is to bring him to a place of further learning, further knowledge, further growth. That's, that's the good life, folks. Have you found it? Have you found that good life? A lot of people out there saying, just trying to be a good person, just trying to find the good life. You hear the world talk a lot about the good life. I found it. It's in Proverbs 19. Let's pray together. Father, with these many characteristics, I suspect that there may be those who could be sitting here and they're not characteristically good. They don't evidence in their life the characteristics of what it means to be a good man or a good woman. Lord, I pray for them. These Proverbs in this great chapter, they tell us very plainly what the good life is and how to find it. And I pray that they would have found it tonight. 
all of these things that Solomon of old was endeavoring to tell his own sons, and all of these things for which we have been taught tonight can only be lived out if we know Jesus Christ. We've confessed our sins, sought His forgiveness, desired to turn from our sin and to embrace this our Savior, Jesus. Oh, Father, I pray any young person here, any person who's had an attachment even to the church for many, many years, but who knows about their life, that these things are not characteristic of who they are. And like Jesus and His own words, referring to others, there's bad fruit hanging from that bad tree. Lord, I pray that You would open blind eyes tonight and allow bad trees to see the, the good life and how to find it. Pray that they would respond to this message that Jesus has given us and that the Holy Spirit is inspired through His Word. I pray that if there are good tree people here, that they would be encouraged to continue to grow and have ever-bearing fruit out of that good tree so that we're really, truly living the good life. That is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.